Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I really love having these geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This week, I sit down with Dr. Nicholas Shazer, who is the professor of Hebrew Bible at Israel Bible Center. In an unbelievable way, it is December of 2020, and Christians are entering the Advent season as a time to remember the birth of Jesus. And so this seems like a perfect time to actually think about the Jewishness of the Gospels. Not so coincidentally, Dr. Shazer has a course called The Jewish Gospel of Matthew. Now, before we even get into the conversation, we need to figure out why we can even say that this particular gospel is Jewish. After all, it's written in Greek and most likely was not even written in Galilee or Jerusalem or Judea, any of the land that is actually portrayed in the gospels. So I asked Dr. Shazer to start us off by telling us the type of clues that are present that allow us to say that the Gospel of Matthew is Jewish or that it was written for a Jewish audience. That's a great question, Cindy. And it's true. We don't know. We don't know to whom Matthew was written. We don't know if Matthew, technically, we don't know if Matthew was Jewish or not. But all we can do as, as gospel readers is to look at the data that we see on the page. And the data that we see on the page is highly Judaic for a number of different reasons. Hmm. So first of all, Matthew begins with a genealogy that goes back to Abraham and, hmm. and goes through David and, and lists a bunch of the figures from Israel's history. And so what Matthew wants to do is link Jesus back to that. So already couching Jesus in a, in a very Judaic context. In the next couple of chapters, chapters one and two, we get what's called the fulfillment citations, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And that is just references to the Tanakh, references to Israel's scriptures or what Christians call the Old Testament. And that's only in Matthew, a lengthy uh, series of fulfillment citations. So right off the bat, the author of Matthew is, is couching Jesus' story within Israel's history. And indeed, over and over throughout the gospel, uh, Jesus is comparing, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew is comparing Jesus, for example, to Moses several times mm. over. Mm. Uh, Jesus's story really mirrors that of Moses uh, in the Torah. And so uh, for, for these reasons and many, many others, it's just very clear that the writer of Matthew's gospel was extremely knowledgeable about not only Israel's scriptures and history, but also about contemporary Jewish tradition of the day. Mm. Let's start with the genealogy, since that is how Matthew opens up the gospel. I've been in churches where they kind of hit genealogies and they kind of go, blah, 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 blah. Let's get to the really fun narratives. So why is it so significant that Matthew opens with a genealogy instead of opening with some big narrative about John the Baptist or Jesus's birth or something like that? I think that the best place to go is right at the beginning of the genealogy, because Matthew describes Jesus as son of David, son of Abraham. And 
what I think we should be asking ourselves is who were the sons of David and Abraham in the, the narrative of, of the Bible? And we end up with Solomon, you know, the most famous son of David, to be sure, and Isaac, the most famous son of Abraham. What's interesting about these two figures, Solomon and Isaac, is that Solomon is brought up first before he's even born in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God is promising to David that David's throne will go on forever. There'll always be a king on the throne. And so what Matthew is doing is positioning Jesus as a descendant of David and Solomon and saying that Jesus is indeed this eternal son of David who's going to reign as Israel's king because he's going to be raised from the dead and hence live forever. And so Jesus is going to to fulfill that in 2 Samuel 7. And interestingly, in 2 Samuel 7, God says to David that the one who will come from him, that is Solomon, really, initially, uh, God will be a father to him and he will be God's son. So we get this familial language that, of course, is going to be employed in Matthew and the rest of the Gospels over and over with Jesus being the son of God. Moving on to Abraham and Isaac, well, what's the most famous story between Abraham and Isaac? It's the Akedah. In Hebrew, that means the binding of Isaac. This is You can read about this in Genesis chapter 22. And, you know, we all know the story. Abraham, as Isaac's father, almost sacrifices in, uh, his son Isaac, and then he's given a ram in the distance to, to substitute for Isaac. Well, what Matthew was saying, and when we see this really, I would say, I guess, implicitly through all the intertextual references that Matthew makes throughout the gospel to Isaac, that Jesus is going to recapitulate Isaac, except Jesus is going to go all the way and offer himself as a sacrifice or a mm-hmm. ransom, as Matthew will say in Matthew 20, 28. And so that is what Matthew's doing is presenting Jesus as a, again, a recapitulation or better, a, a rerunner, a representer of Israel's history mm-hmm. in these two famous figures of, of the son of David and the son of Abraham. It's kind of him setting the stage and saying, this is what the whole entire gospel is going to be about. And then he can do it in one sentence and it carries all that information with it. Right. So so the, the author can do it in one sentence. Yeah. As long as the reader is willing to go back right. to the original context. Right. So I think that that gives us some insight into what the mm. author of really the author is plural of all the gospels want. And that is for us to be going back into the biblical Tanakhic Old Testament context yep. and, and really mining the literature uh, and comparing that to Jesus. I often think of genealogies as being each name that is mentioned is almost like a little package. It's a story. And so to follow the genealogy, you have to follow all of those different stories. And he's leaving out generations and he's choosing to add certain people. And it's really interesting the people he chooses to put into his genealogy because he uses out of the box patterns. So can you mm-hmm. just talk about some of the other characters and people who are in the genealogy? Let's start with the women of the genealogy, I think yes. is really important. <laughs> um, so what do we get? We get reference to, to several women throughout the gospel, some explicitly, some implicitly. One would be um, Tamar of, of Judah and Tamar. This is, this is Genesis chapter 38, if anybody wants to go back and read it. And then we, we, we move on, we get Rahab, who shows up in Joshua chapter 2 and 6. And then we move on and we get reference sort of implicitly to Bathsheba through Uriah, her husband. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Mary. People have asked the question, you know, we also get Ruth, by the way. Yeah. Um, and so these are the women that are, that are mentioned. So scholars have tried to figure out why on earth are all these women being mentioned. 
Some have posited the idea of big, big, long scholarly academia's phrase coming up here, obstetrical irregularity. Mary uh, conceives Jesus by irregular means, right? Uh, that is through the through the gifting of the Holy Spirit. And uh, and so some scholars have said, well, the stories of these women uh, sometimes have to do with sort of irregular sexual situations. Tamar uh, pretends to be a, a prostitute and gets uh, Judah actually to admit a, a fault of his, a sin of his. And Judah says that she's more righteous than I. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that Rahab, of course, is is herself a prostitute. Ruth, right, and she um, she ends up marrying Boaz, but mm-hmm. that too is irregular. The, the circumstances of their meeting is irregular, and uh, and so it might be obstet- obstetrical irregularity that, that is the reason for all these women. I I don't really buy it, yeah, because um, it's not obstetrical necessarily. Obstetrical would be in terms of pregnancy. These women, you know, like Rahab. There's not a pregnancy story with Rahab, for example. That really doesn't work. Uh, but I think a better move would be to say that they are all or could be all non-Israelites. We don't really know, but they may all be Gentiles. In certain Jewish tradition, Tamar was known as a non-Jew, as a Canaanite. And Ruth, of course, is a Moabite. And Rahab, of course, is a Canaanite. And so we, do, we, don't, we don't know the ethnic background of, of Bathsheba. So that may be the case, too. The only problem with that is that Mary is Jewish. So right. Mary sort of ruins the, the domino effect there. I think personally that if you if you go back, it's 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 these women who who help Israel, who who intercede on behalf of the salvation of Israel or the continuation of the line that Matthew is discussing in Jesus's genealogy. So I think it really has more to do with women intervening to preserve the the line of, you know, of which Jesus is a part and also to uh, work with God directly in bringing that about. So those are the women, and they're all really, really interesting. I'd love to just encourage you to go back through and reread the list of people included by the writer of the gospel. The women are not the only unusual people listed. There are younger sons mentioned instead of older sons. There are famous and non-famous characters. So women along with men, even characters who are not specifically referenced to in the Torah. Like this guy. Nachshon ben Aminadav doesn't show up explicitly in the Torah, but in later Jewish tradition, it's this person who walks part of the way into the Red Sea before uh, the Israelites leave Egypt. And it's Nachshon's faith that split ends up finally splitting the sea completely. Now, again, this is not in the New Testament. The story isn't in the New Testament explicitly, nor is it in the Old Testament explicitly. But it's clear that Matthew knows this figure. So it's another example of the writer of Matthew knowing Jewish tradition that would end up being preserved in later rabbinic thought. Okay, so Matthew, right after the genealogy, he starts in on these fulfillment texts. So he's telling this birth narrative of Jesus and he keeps saying something like, and this is to fulfill what the prophet said. And then he'll quote something. And a lot of people will then say, oh, the prophet Isaiah, for instance, the Isaiah text that he uses is, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. 
And I don't know how many times I've had students in class who have said, see, Isaiah was predicting Jesus. I'm like, well, let's go back and relook at the Isaiah text. So how do you explain in your class? Because I think you go through all of these fulfillment texts. So if you could just choose maybe one or two and just tell sure. us how, how is the author of Matthew using the writings of the prophets to help explain this birth narrative of Jesus? So, yes, traditionally we approach this material, these so-called fulfillment citations that Matthew uh, includes in, in Jesus's birth narrative. And we say, aha, Isaiah's speaking about Jesus of Nazareth right. in <laughs> right. Isaiah's own context. Hence, 800 years later, Jesus fulfills something that the people of Israel were waiting for with bated breath for, you know, almost a millennium. Right. Yeah. And it's so obvious. How did anyone miss it? Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's right. Well, right. Yeah. The only way that you could get away with that kind of a, a reading is if you actually haven't read Isaiah. And, and, and as, as I said, Matthew wants you going back to, to the context. And the context is Isaiah chapters seven and eight. Actually, when, when Matthew refers to, you know, which means God with us, Emmanuel, it's really a reference to, to Isaiah chapter eight. Although the actual citation, the virgin will conceive and bear a child and you'll call his name Emmanuel, that comes from Isaiah 7, 14. Hmm. And so the job of the Good New Testament reader is to go back and read all of Isaiah 7 and 8. And when you do that, you see a specific context. And that is King Ahaz, who was the king of Judah at the time in Jerusalem. And he's being besieged or, or will be besieged by a couple different other kings, from the one from the northern kingdom of Israel. At this point, the kingdom has has split in two, and the northern kingdom of Israel is in cahoots with Syria, mm -hmm. which of course borders that, that part of the world, and they want to attack Ahaz in the southern kingdom of Judah, and this is the problem. Ahaz is very worried about this, as is the entire house of David, the text mm -hmm. says. So what God says is, okay, I'll give you a sign, and that sign is going gonna, is gonna to be, he nay, behold, the virgin, or we can talk about that word in a, in a second if you want, uh, the woman is going to conceive and bear a child and you'll call his name Emmanuel. All right, fair enough. And then it goes on and it says, and before that child knows the difference between good and evil, before the child can choose the, the good and eschew the evil, the two kings that you're worried about to the north of you will be deserted, will be destroyed. Okay, then just keep reading in the first few verses of chapter eight. And the text says, and I went to the prophetess and she conceived. Okay, so the child is named something a little bit different than Emmanuel, but there's a bunch of, of symbolic names that are being thrown around that mean certain things. Right. The, the point is, and we don't need to get into the details, but the point is, is that this child must have been born in Isaiah's day. Why is that? Two reasons. One, because God says that God is going to send a sign to Ahaz. Mm -hmm. So if God doesn't send that sign and the woman doesn't give birth to this child, then God has failed in God's promise. Mm -hmm. We don't want God to be a liar. So God right. must have fulfilled this. Secondly, historically, we know that God did because the Assyrians, not the Syrians, but the Assyrians, the big bad kingdom to the east, That's right. comes in and sweeps in and does destroy Syria and the northern kingdom. That is, historically, this occurred. So that is, if we think of Emmanuel in Isaiah's context as not having been born and just waiting for Jesus to come along, then God doesn't make good on that promise to Ahaz. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, I mean, no Bible reader should want that. So then what are you left with? What's your other option? Well, maybe it's not prediction, but rather, again, I used that fancy word before, but maybe it's recapitulation. That is, there's mm -hmm. in it an Emmanuel 
baby born in Isaiah's day as a sign to Ahaz. And we know that came to fulfillment because Assyria beat up on the northern kingdom of Israel, just Mm -hmm. like God said. And then many, many years later, Jesus recapitulates, represents what has already happened in in Israel's history, according to Isaiah. That is, Jesus, if you want, is the second Emmanuel. And this shouldn't bother us. I mean, Paul uses second Adam language, for example, all the time throughout throughout his letters for Jesus. So if Jesus is a second Adam, Jesus is also a second Emmanuel. And that's how this this fulfillment material is working. Let me give you one more example. This comes from Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, and it's a citation of Hosea 11.1. Yes. And Matthew says, okay, so Herod wants to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. So an angel warns Joseph to take his family to Egypt. And then they come out of Egypt uh, once Herod dies. And Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So that is a partial quotation of the first verse of Hosea 11. If you go back and actually read the context of Hosea 11, the, the whole text says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So it's very clear that in the original context, Hosea is not speaking of Jesus of Nazareth. uh, Hosea is speaking of the nation of Israel as a whole. Right. And so what is Matthew saying? Well, Matthew doesn't cite the whole thing. You got two options again. Let me give us two options. One, Matthew knows the real context and is willfully obscuring the verse in order to say, oh, Hosea is really talking about Jesus and hoping, hoping to God that that the reader won't go back, right? It would be very crafty, right? Like if we assigned him that motivation. (laughs) It would be very crafty. Essentially what we'd have is the gospel writer of Matthew being a liar, okay? So we don't, that's essentially, that's certainly what we don't want as New Testament readers. So what's our other option? It's the same option that works so well with the Isaiah quotation. And that is, of course, Matthew knows the context. We we saw that, you know, the, the business about the son of David, son of Abraham. Matthew desperately wants you to go back and read it. So when you go back and read Hosea and you realize, oh, the child, the son out of Egypt is is Israel. What's Matthew saying? As with Israel, so with Israel's Messiah. Jesus recapitulates the Mm -hmm. history of Israel in himself. It's really important also to note when we go back to the idea of prediction. Okay, Hosea's line there, out of Egypt I called my son, is not a prediction of anything. It's It's a recollection of the Exodus. (laughs) So even in its original context, the the prophet is not predicting some far-flung events. Right. That is, the prophet already sets up the recapitulation in the the prophetic context. That is, Hosea is recapitulating the memory of Exodus, and so is Jesus in his own life. Hmm. So Matthew's proof for the Messiah, Jesus being the Messiah, is not that he fulfills, quote-unquote, little bits and pieces of the Bible here and there, and if you could just put all of these things, you know, together, you'd see so clearly that Jesus is the Messiah. That is not Matthew's method. Matthew's method is to say yeah. Jesus actually reruns the entire history of Israel's scriptures in himself. And that's how I know he's the Messiah. From my perspective, that is a much stronger reason to yeah. believe in Jesus as the Messiah of Israel than, than if he just, you know, fulfills little bits and pieces here and there. Yeah. M- moreover, moreover. Um, you know, people oftentimes talk about messianic prophecies in Matthew. And, and how, how could one possibly, like, let's say you're a traditional Jewish person and you don't follow Jesus, how could you possibly read through your Tanakh and not realize that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah? You know, it says so, so explicitly. Well, the problem is we need to figure out what a messianic prophecy is. Mm-hmm. At no point 
does the Old Testament prophet say, all right, stop. Okay, red light. What's coming next is a messianic prophecy. (laughs) And the interpretation of this is very, very clear. I'm going to give it to you. And then after that, I'm going to go back to relatively nebulous and unimportant material. Right, right. Okay, never does that happen. So what are we doing? We're identifying what we deem to be messianic or not. So it is up up to interpretation. What I would contend Matthew is doing is not assigning certain verses as quote-unquote messianic and others as non-messianic. What Matthew is doing is offering sort of a a taste of a, a much broader method, and that is Matthew thinks Jesus reruns all of it. Right. That is, you don't have to worry about what's quote unquote messianic and what isn't. For Matthew, it's all messianic because is. Jesus reruns. Yeah. yeah. Jesus reruns the history of Israel. I did take Dr. Shazer up on the offer to explore what the word virgin would have meant in Isaiah's writing versus the theology surrounding Mary that comes from the Gospels. The answer was wonderfully geeky, but slightly off topic from where I wanted to go for the podcast. But if you want to hear his answer, go take his course. He covers it there. I did finally tear myself away from Matthew's birth narrative, which really isn't all that easy for me. There are too many fascinating things there. I really love the significance of geography in these opening chapters. I love the underlying political tension of the Magi visiting Herod. All of those details are actually in a new book I have coming out in January called Encountering Jesus in the Real World of the Gospels. Some of the details also find their way into a new IBC course coming out any day now called Listening to the Land of the Bible Part 2. I will add links in the episode notes. Touching on what you were saying with how the writer of the Gospel of Matthew is using these prophetic texts and is actually creating this scene for us of Jesus recapitulating this much larger story of Israel. This seems to also continue through the baptism text and then also into the wilderness, going back to how the author of Matthew is using scripture. Jesus in the wilderness quotes Deuteronomy, but then the tempter is also using biblical text. So let's talk about what on earth is going on here in this wilderness temptation time. Sure. So so Jesus has a kind of a scripture battle with Satan, with the devil in the wilderness. (laughs) I love how you put it like that. (laughs) So great. (laughs) And this is normal, right? This is par for the course. You read rabbinic literature and they're constantly throwing different different, uh, verses at each other and stuff to prove their point. Jesus cites Deuteronomy three times, and he cites verses from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 8. And the devil also cites text, and the devil only cites it once. And it's in the context of wanting Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. And the devil then says, as it is written, God, God's angels will lift you up lest you right. dash your foot against the stone. That is from Psalm 91. Psalm 91 in in the translations. So in the original Hebrew, Psalm 91 is essentially a a, a psalm to ward off pestilence, agricultural problems in the original Hebrew. Hmm. But by the time we get into the Septuagint, the Greek translation, the the Greek translation actually says that, um, may God protect you from the daimonion, from from a demon. 
And so we get this idea in the Greek version that it's a it's actually a prayer to ward away, you know, evil forces or demons. We get this even more concretely in what's called the Targums, the Aramaic translation of the mm-hmm. of the Hebrew Bible that that are sort of contemporary with Jesus and then some centuries after Jesus, where Psalm 91 is has reference to demons all over the place. The Dead Sea Scrolls, in fact, used Psalm 91 in an, as far as we can tell, in a kind of an exorcist ritual. And so what does all this mean? It means that by the time Matthew writes in the first century, any Jew worth their salt uh, biblically knows that Psalm 91 is what's called an apotropaic psalm, meaning it's meant to ward away the devil. It's meant to ward away demons. So Satan quotes the one text that everybody knew was meant to to get him gone. Uh, that is very, very silly and dumb. And the the uh, the original first century Jewish reader would have had a hearty out loud laugh at this because it is funny. Jesus is a good rabbi citing Deuteronomy. Uh, everybody knows that's a classic text to go to. Good Torah text. That's right. And Satan picks the one text that's meant to drive him away. <laughs> I love that so much because those little bits of insight that add humor in the text where we don't commonly, like just on a surface reading of the Gospel of Matthew, you don't read that as funny. You read it as like this really hard temptation and to like just be able to throw in a few like good belly laughs is maybe unexpected, but adds so much interest Right. And color to the text, which is delightful. That's right. Yeah. You know, and as when I talk about this little historical translational piece, um, a a lot of people will come back and say, well, you know, why why would Matthew present the devil that way? You know, uh, the devil says that, you know, or the the New Testament says the devil prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. Mm -hmm. Are are you saying that the devil is not dangerous? That lion text is in the Petrine epistles. It's not in Matthew. But I, but I just say, look, you know, you can be dangerous and dumb at the same time. Right? <laughs> uh, in fact, I can think of several people who are that. Uh, sure. um, yeah, I, I, I won't wade into it. But but um, yeah, it doesn't diminish the the the, uh, you know, the danger, I, I guess, or whatever. Uh, but for Matthew in particular, does not think much of the devil's intellect. The Matt Matthew, the writer, thinks the devil is quite silly and and stupid. Uh, we can see this. All it takes is a quick internet search of all the times that either Satan or the devil show up in Matthew. And every single time the context is, is the devil's doing something dumb. So, so we already saw the wilderness incident, which is very poor and silly citation of scripture. But then in like Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is talking about the parable of the sower and says that the right. evil one, the devil sows weeds. Okay, no good farmer. I don't even think you can sow a weed. Uh, it, let's just say this. It's not an agriculturally astute thing to do. Right. It's just, yeah, Matthew does not think much of, of the devil, to be honest. It is interesting, right? The way that we bring our own context, our own ways that we've been her- hearing um, and interpreting gospels. And then we start reading that into the text. And every once in a while, we need to take these courses that kind of shuffle up the way that we think to kind of have new eyes. To exactly. Look at these yeah. And then that's that's one really one of my goals in my Jewish Gospel of Matthew course. And that is is to say, let's come to this text, you know, as unbiasedly as we can. And mm-hmm. let's let the text do its work on us. And if that means that we run into question marks about certain traditions or things that we've heard from a, a from a pastor or a parent, we, we really just need to go with the flow of the text. 
Hmm. And uh, and when we do that, actually, it's 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 actually very liberative and it's uh, very fulfilling because it's going to, again, offer us this window into the actual original historical Jewish context hmm. of this material. And that's something that we should all want. This is why you should be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whichever podcast platform you are listening on so you don't miss out as we explore the Jewishness of Matthew's gospel during this Advent season. Thank you for joining us this week on the Israel Bible Podcast. If you like what you hear, sign up for this course or just go explore your way through Israel Bible Center's flagship certificate program on Jewish context and culture. Or follow the links in the episode notes to find out how you can get this and many other courses with one small monthly subscription. And as a thank you for listening to this podcast, use the coupon code ISRAEL when you register to receive free surprises. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds that you hear. And thank you for being curious about the world of the Bible. I look forward to our conversation next week.